Welcome to People Doing Physics, the podcast that explores the personal side of physics at the Cavendish Lab at the University of Cambridge. Hi, I'm Paolo Molinini. I am a postdoc in theoretical physics here at the Cavendish. And I'm Jacob Butler. I run the physics outreach programs here at the Cavendish. Our guest this month is Stuart McPherson, a postdoctoral researcher in experimental optoelectronics in the Strangs lab. Stuart's research focuses on understanding the physics of solar photovoltaics based on perovskite compounds, one of the fastest advancing solar technologies of today. Stuart is also the founder of Sustained, a nonprofit organization that aims to provide sustainability resources to young students. One of their activities is the Energy Mapping Challenge aimed at primary school students. Through hands-on measurements and data logging, students increase their awareness about climate change and learn how to critically approach scientific problems and apply the knowledge gained to solve real-world problems. The project has already been piloted at six schools across the country and is now scaling up further. Another activity that he has launched with SustainEd is the SustainEd Learning Module, an educational package which augments the KS2 curriculum in the UK by offering activities which reinforce awareness of sustainability and climate action while maintaining core learning outcomes. For his projects with SustainEd, in 2021, Stuart was recognized with the Vice-Chancellor's Social Impact Award. But how did his journey in sustainability start? and how does it relate to the technologies that he has been developing? We will ask him this and more in our interview. Stay with us. So Stuart, great to have you here today. To start off with, could you tell us a little bit about your background and sort of how you ended up studying physics at university? So the, the early days of what made you, you. <laughs> yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, so I was brought up in a town called Bothwell, which is near the city of Glasgow in Scotland. And it's actually in a county called South Lanarkshire, which is a really kind of interesting history. And it's also a kind of interesting county because it's partly forming like a kind of suburb of Glasgow now, which is like slowly expanding. And it's also part countryside. Um, so my upbringing was quite simple, really. I, I went to the local public school. Um, and at that age, you know, in kind of primary school age, I was already kind of interested in the academic route so I was kind of you know very interested in all the subjects to do with science at school um, but it wasn't really until secondary school and you know kind of building better relationships with some of my science teachers that I really focused more on you know wanting to study physics as a subject at university. So I think one thing that's interesting about my upbringing is that my sort of my grandfather was very sort of pushy in terms of he wanted me to go to university and study something, but his background was more in journalism. Um, so I kind of tried that out at the age of maybe 12, 13. You know, I was interested in writing and things like that. But having, having actually got to experience the world of journalism on a work experience uh, trip in my third year of high school, I kind of saw what a kind of dog-eat-dog <laughs> dog world that could be. <laughs> um, and I quickly realised that my character wasn't really, you know, wasn't really built for that. Um, and then as a result, I sort of focused more on sciences. And I think I was kind of inspired 
to be a doctor for a while by um, certain people in my life and also certain TV shows and things that I'd watched. <laughs> um, but it wasn't until my fifth year of high school when my, my physics teacher, Stuart Sutherland, you know, became the kind of driving influence towards me wanting to study physics. Now, it does seem to come down to one particularly good teacher in people's past so often, doesn't it? Yeah, so I think his his particular character was a bit kooky and a bit strange, um, <laughs> which was the kind of what I what I presume was a bit of an antithesis to, to physics because physics was so, you know, made up of rules and regulations almost about how the world worked. But the way he kind of taught us was very loose and, um, you know, he didn't really go by the book. Like, I don't remember ever using a textbook in his classroom. He used to just stand up and almost perform in front of us, <laughs> which was really kind of inspiring. Um, but, you know, at, at school, especially at state schools in Scotland, like most of the kids in the class at that age didn't really care <laughs> too much about what he was saying. Um, but some of us, you know, genuinely engaged with him and thankfully um, listened enough to then go to university. And <laughs> yeah, it's not just what he said but also the way he said it exactly i remember if we if we came up with like a strange question for him um or a question that he couldn't answer that was beyond beyond his 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 realm of of comfort um he would just put his hand up and say a melon this color and he would which would you know that you know you can't sort of describe a color by <laughs> by size <laughs> um, and that was basically his way of saying like don't ask questions that i don't know <laughs> um but yeah, he had he had some interesting views, and like I remember one day, he um, he came up to me because he knew I was really interested in physics and also kind of interested in teaching, and he sort of said, Stuart, like I know you're you're interested in this class, but please don't be a physics teacher. <laughs> and I sort of was like, why? Like you know, you're a physics teacher, and you know I can see that this is a, a job that you enjoy. And he said, "Oh no, it's it's not it's not for the faint of heart." And <laughs> and his his daughter was going through the sort of teacher training process at that time, and I think he'd seen that it was becoming more difficult for teachers to get into the the positions that they wanted to. And he was he was about sixty at this time, I think. So you know he'd kind of come through a different era. So yeah, that was that was me told. <laughs> but eventually, you decide to study physics, uh, and you enroll at University of St Andrews in Scotland. And how was your experience there? It's really interesting. So the, the kind of region that I'm from is relatively working class. Um, and St Andrews is kind of known as this sort of fairly upper class enclave in Scotland. Um, and my experience at St Andrews was really tuned a little bit by the fact that my family had often went there for like little holidays and stuff um, in summers before. So I kind of knew the town a little bit already and had some sort of friends and towns nearby, and that made it a lot easier. But one thing I was really grateful for was that St Andrews actually got all the people that were from the kind of greater Glasgow area to meet up beforehand in a kind of small, um, like kind of summer school thing, just for a day to get to know each other so that you were going to university and having at least one or two, <laughs> one or two friends. <laughs> Familiar to, faces. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Someone you could, you could uh, recognize and start a conversation with, um, which was nice. And, you know, St Andrews is a very funny place because it's, its population is about half made up of students. So it's like even it's like Cambridge on steroids in a way, because <laughs> Cambridge is a small town and becomes a bit of a bubble during the academic terms. But St Andrews is, is crazy. There's only about three main streets 
um, in the several university halls. So you really feel like you can't walk up the street to the shops without seeing someone you know. And in that sense, it's very warm and welcoming. And the, the sort of pace of the academic courses that I was doing in, in physics were were good for me. Like it was challenging, but it was, I found it fairly um, straightforward for the first couple of years. And that really eased me in and allowed me to enjoy being away from home. And, and you know, it, I feel like I grew more as a person in the first two years rather than just like academically, you know, it was just nice to, to have that experience. And when we spoke earlier, you mentioned also starting the St. Andrews Engineering Group. And what motivated you to do this and what sort of things did you get onto? Yeah, so in the first few years at St. Andrews, um, we had a lot of courses that were more focused on theoretical physics. And we did have some practical labs, but a few of us in the classroom were kind of becoming a little bit disgruntled at not having enough practical science specifically to do with like engineering and electronics because St Andrews actually doesn't have an engineering department which is kind of unusual for the size of university it is so we decided to take it upon ourselves to give people who were interested in being a bit more hands-on and building things to start this St Andrews engineering group which would welcome people from any subject obviously but we got a lot of people mainly from physics from computer science um, and we started doing projects that were to do with like coding and robotics and also to do with they had kind of a renewable energy theme. So the first thing we tried was actually to build like a solar powered vehicle, or, like a small remote control vehicle. And just before in, before anyone's carried away, it's nothing like the Cambridge <laughs> eco racing team here who have like a fully functional racing car. Um, we very much had like a kind of aluminium frame with a solar panel on top. <laughs> it was very simple. But there was um, also another project where you uh, built a near balloon. This is this is true. Yeah. So in my final year, um, my myself and my my good friend were sort of in charge of everything, and we decided, okay, let's try and launch a weather balloon and measure some interesting, um, you know, put some sensors in it and measure some interesting atmospheric properties, and then try and track it like storm chasers like you know driving after it in the jeep and and pick it up wherever it lands and we were like oh maybe it'll land in in germany or maybe it'll land in uh, iceland like depending on the wind and things and on the day of launch we were sort of tying all the bits together and so this is quite a simple simple thing so it's like a, a polystyrene water cooler basically is the payload and inside that there's a mobile, a mobile phone which is pinging back data from a few sensors like a temperature sensor pressure sensor and positional data just using the phone's gps and on top of that you need a radar reflector because planes need to see it obviously, uh, obviously uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you don't want to be bringing any jets down we're also very close to an airbase actually like RAF lookers it was at the time so we didn't want to get in trouble with the military <laughs> and then above that you have a helium i think it's helium filled sort of large um oblong kind of weather balloon and when you're tying all the bits together you need to be careful to tie them securely and when we actually launched this weather balloon after six months or so of preparation it made it about 
a few hundred a few hundred meters into the air before it broke apart because someone had <laughs> made security properly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> someone someone had made the radar reflector at cardboard and that ended up being load bearing. <laughs> <laughs> so so we we ended up with a payload crashed in a field about a few hundred meters away. Science and is made of trial and error. <laughs> so. Exactly. And without an engineering department, they can't blame you for using a cardboard <laughs> as a structural member. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't know any better. We can't, we can't so be blamed. There was also a story, uh, I think there was your master project where you had to build a radar. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so my master's thesis um, was kind of focused on something really interesting, actually. I worked with a, with a guy called Dr. Graham Smith, who heads up the millimeter waves and radar group in St. Andrews. And what they do is they build and model radar systems to do certain things. And those include um, imaging inside volcanoes and also sort of low atmosphere CubeSat imaging of the Earth. So my actual project was to computationally design uh, a small feed horn for radar. So that's actually the horn that takes the millimeter waves from something that's generating them and like, impinges them on a radar reflector. So you see like a satellite dish. Um, that's basically what, what's happening. You have the kind of pointy bit outside the dish, which is shining some sort of electromagnetic rays onto the big round bit <laughs> and that's um, either receiving or transmitting them uh, into the far field. So I was designing the pointy bit and my project was really to design the pointy bit so that it was the as, as small and lightweight as possible because they wanted to send this component on a CubeSat into space. So, Very exciting. Yeah, I know, it's really <laughs> exciting. So yeah, the deal with a CubeSat is basically that you have a 10 centimeter by 10 centimeter payload that can fit into the transport section of a rocket. And these are often launched now, like privately. So you can actually, if you, if you have the money, you can put whatever you want in space, basically. Um, but for this particular application, we want to have like a transmitter on this CubeSat and we want the feed horn that's the part of the radar reflector to be as, as small and as condensed as possible because every, I think every kilogram of weight that's on this, this small payload, you need to, you, you need to add like, X amount of liquid oxygen yeah, to your rocket fuel. Tons and tons of rocket fuel, <laughs> exactly. which is very expensive. Yeah, yeah, and no one no one wants to deal with that that cost. So in 2017, you finished your master's, and this was quite a tumultuous time with Brexit, with uh, America voting the way it voted, and then withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accord and so on. Uh, you told us that atmosphere played a big part in your decision-making process on whether to pursue a PhD and in which field you would pursue it. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Absolutely. So I applied to come to Cambridge in the sort of winter of 2017. And this was obviously post that, that dreadful summer of, <laughs> of Brexit and, um, you know, elections in America. And I think there was a feeling of slight disillusion amongst my generation. A lot of us were becoming more and more aware of sustainability issues, because I think we did grow up with a certain knowledge of you know, climate change and the need for action. But in the wake of like the Paris Agreement in 2015, plus followed up by this kind of sort of movement towards populism and, and a bit of a rejection of the science, there was a real feeling of disillusion. So I instantly thought, okay, I really want to work in a field that's going to help this problem and do something towards getting us to net zero and, and getting us to where we need to be. So I applied specifically for the optoelectronics group here in Cambridge because I knew that the materials they were working on and developing were going to be contributing to completely new 
solar technologies, new energy harvesting technologies that weren't, weren't really relevant now, but could possibly cause a step change in the future. Because obviously solar panels have been around for years and they've been slowly increasing in efficiency and increasing in uptake. But I, I still felt that there needed to be like a step change in the technology so that the uptake was, you know, significantly increased and the, that kind of cost barrier that was, that was definitely still present five years ago was, was eradicated. And actually, even since then, to be fair, silicon panels, silicon solar panels have, have reduced in cost so much that they're actually very competitive with, you know, non-renewable energy now, which is great, but there's still room for, you know, disrupting the space. So I picked out um, my supervisor, Dr. Sam Stranks, when I was sort of interviewing with various PIs or various supervisors here because at the time he was also new to the department. So I knew that I'd be coming in and starting with someone who was just building their own group. And he had not only that kind of ambition and drive to, to grow something really novel and interesting, but I knew that the technology that he was sort of subscribed to, which is the perovskite photovoltaics, was really going somewhere. Um, so this technology sort of only only kind of came on the scene in about 2009. So the first solar cell that incorporated any perovskite materials was was sort of pioneered in 2009. And there was a few years of sort of figuring out some um, bumps in the road with how to actually incorporate these as because because the, there's, there's a few properties that I'll explain in a second that make them very promising for solar cells. But it wasn't really until sort of the early tweenies, if we can call them that, <laughs> um, that they started to show real promise as, as photovoltaic materials. So I knew that this was a, a field that was going somewhere and I wanted to sort of get on board and try and contribute as much as I could. Okay, and, and what was the PhD hiring process like and how did you find the move to Cambridge after going through it? That's a great question. Um, so the PhD hiring process was interesting for me because the first person I actually spoke to, so I, I, as, as you apply for the PhD, you sort of send in your application, you apply to both the department and then eventually a college. And when you apply to the department, supervisors for, of different groups can choose to talk to you and sort of offer you positions or find out what you want and kind of work through what you might actually do in their group. And the first person I met was Professor Henning Siringhouse, who's um, you know, a kind of pioneer in, in microelectronic systems, transistors, you know, he's, he's got an incredible grip, incredible reputation. And this was the first time I'd met like, any Cambridge professor. This was online and using Skype back in the day. <laughs> and um, I was quite nervous, obviously, because I wanted to make a good impression. But unfortunately, on, on that day, I'd just been to the dentist and <laughs> I think I'd had a tooth removed. And I actually turned up to the interview with basically a full numb mouth. So when I said, hello, my name is Stuart, I was kind of almost like drilling. <laughs> and um, it immediately broke the ice in a weird way. And he was like, you know, it's fine. Like, this, is, this is just normal. Um, and we had a really good chat. And, and he, he was doing some really amazing stuff with materials called thermoelectrics, which take heat and, and use that to generate voltage. And kind of like a solar cell, they, they can harvest energy um, and like, it was a very tight, you know, very difficult decision whether to work with him or work with Sam. But, um, you know, that after that experience, I knew that people at Cambridge were very receptive to, you know, wherever you'd 
however you'd kind of approach this process. Like I, I went in very cold. I had never really worked in a research environment and he was super welcoming. And um, I mean, I definitely encourage anyone to take up the opportunity to chat to professors or um, group leaders at Cambridge because they do tend to want to look outwards and actually engage with you. And they're more than happy to talk about the research as well, in my experience. So. <laughs> Stopping them, that's the problem. <laughs> um, yeah, speaking of research, uh, can you talk a bit about your actual research here in Cambridge? You mentioned your research compounds called perovskites, right? So what are they and why are they useful in solar panels? Yeah, so perovskites are a kind of hybrid organic and organic uh, material which are useful in solar cells because they have a really high absorption coefficient. So that is the they absorb light very efficiently. So the consequence of that is that we can make solar cells with absorber layers that are super thin. So your typical silicon solar panel, which is on many, you see on rooftops and around cities and, and fields, those have a silicon absorber layer, which is typically hundreds of microns thick, um, which is kind of point, point 0.1 millimeters. Um, Whereas these perovskite materials that we use, we spin, we spin coat films, so we actually solution process the films. So the, we make an ink of the material that we can print on a substrate, and the absorber layer thickness is about 500 nanometers, which is actually thinner than a human hair. So you can imagine that the opportunities that this offers, so you can make a jug of ink, and that can be enough, that can be enough ink to print panels that would power like a house, for example. Um, so you have this huge capacity for processing, which is very complicated with silicon because if you're starting out from scratch and trying to develop silicon solar panels, you need to build an industrial scale plant that can basically heat silicon to 1400 degrees Celsius. And the capital that's involved in that is very difficult to accumulate and can be very, that can be a huge barrier for like say, um, like low and middle income or low and middle uh, what's the word for like low for the basically for least developing countries I can do that again <laughs> um, so the benefit of these materials is that we can print them and we have either flexible substrates or ultra thin devices which can be deployed in in regions where you don't need sort of a major infrastructure like if you you know if you have um buildings that aren't fit for purpose for like solar silicon deployment um perhaps you just you can, coat them basically with this uh exactly this you can almost like roll out a mat which is extremely lightweight and and cheap to produce so that's that's a, a really big positive and a big part of your phd was actually understanding uh the defects in these uh perovskites right can you tell us a bit about that yeah so this is a really fast evolving field so when i started in 2017 the major drawback of these films for this technology was that their efficiency didn't match up to existing silicon panels. And one of the problems with the films is they, could, they contain defects. So what the effect of a defect is, when, when the film absorbs light, there's an electron in a hole um, separated and, and an electron is placed in the conduction band, a hole is placed in the valence band. And for a solar cell to work well, we then want to extract these electrons and holes uh, at the contacts. Now what defects do is they kind of speed up and accelerate the recombination of electrons and holes. So they stop us from extracting them at contacts basically. So we want to minimize either impurities or defects that exist within the film 
so that we can extract as much charge as possible and get more electricity out. So that has the effect of increasing the efficiency of the of the solar cells. Um, and you know, during my PhD, I was working on really understanding the fundamentals of that. Rather than making devices and trying to increase efficiencies, I was just printing the absorber layers and studying them using microscopes and lasers. <laughs> um, how how charges recombine and what we can do to make them recombine slower and um, you know mitigate any defects that form and recently we've actually discovered that not only do these defects affect the efficiency of the panels but they actually affect the longevity so the kind of new biggest problem that's facing perovskite photophotics is that these solar cells don't last as long as silicon panels which is a which is a huge drawback if you want to make them commercially viable so our research is kind of shining a light on the fact that if we heal these defects, we can not only increase the efficiency of the materials, but we can increase the longevity and make them um, a much more commercially attractive proposition. This month's news is all about the internet. We all love surfing the web at high speed, not having to wait to load our favorite TV show on iPlayer or to send a large attachment over email. But super high-speed internet is only available through fiber optic cables, while a lot of the UK's current communications network relies on more traditional copper wire networks. And unfortunately, it'll take between 15 to 20 years for these to reach every home in the UK. Researchers from the Cavendish lab here at Cambridge, led by Ergen Dink with Syed Sheharyar Bukhara, Anna Salrawi and Eloide Lera Acedo, and partnering with British Telecom, have looked into what we might be able to do to bridge that gap and improve internet speeds with existing copper network infrastructure, which we're already connected to in most homes, workplaces, and other buildings. The team ran some computational simulations, modeling, and experiments to test the limits of the speeds theoretically achievable with these existing copper wire networks. Their findings, published in the journal Nature Communications, show that while it may be possible to push these copper networks to work at slightly higher frequencies, there is a fundamental physical limit to the frequency that they can be driven. This means that to make our internet and communications networks future-proof, it is important to keep investing in the rollout of new technologies such as fiber-optic infrastructure, which do not have the same limitations as the copper, and highlights the importance of scientists working together with industry and governments to build infrastructure that can serve society in the long term. If you want to find out more, you can find the link to the journal article and the news release in the description box of the podcast. And we're back chatting with Stuart McPherson about his research on sustainable solar panels. So Stuart, you're not just a researcher, you're also involved in a non-profit organisation called SustainEd that provides uh, climate change based education to primary school students. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, so SustainEd, the story behind it is is quite long. I mean, it goes back to being a school student myself and being kind of frustrated at the lack of climate education we got. So as I was growing up, we were hearing lots about, you know, the climate disasters happening all around the world and the lack of political action. And when I came to Cambridge, there was a lot of people that were very like-minded in that sense. And, um, you know, even I think most people in our generation actually are kind of very savvy about climate change and sustainability and want to want to do their best to make a difference. In my group, my supervisor actually set up a subgroup called the Impact Group. And he was very passionate about our group doing things and getting involved in projects that would 
either bring our research into the public domain or just get people involved in science who otherwise weren't or you know engaging people in any way we could. And he basically just set up this space and said, you have take 5% of your daily time to work on something like this and you know be free, come up with ideas, do what you want. So myself and my colleague, Beth Tennyson, who's my complete partner in crime and all of this stuff, we came up with the idea of starting something called the Energy Mapping Challenge. Now what this involves is getting primary school children across the country to simply measure solar energy and wind energy in their own school playground using really simple tools that we provide. So one of them is a, a lux meter, which is simply measures light intensity. And one of them is a little handheld anemometer with a little windmill in, and that measures wind speed. And the purpose of that is not just to get kids doing hands-on science, but it's to engage them in the kind of, what is a, what is a global issue, but initially show them what is an, a national issue of climate change because they're part of a, a national challenge where they can take these measurements, post them online, and see what other schools are doing and see what their results are. So they feel some they feel part of something bigger because they are part of something bigger. And wow, we got such a great reception for it. Um, we piloted this project at a school called Whiter on the Hill in Cambridgeshire. And the teacher there, Dan PC, I think his name was, was super passionate about his kids getting involved in sustainability projects. And we work kind of with seven to 11 year olds. So this is upper primary school students. Uh, so key stage two in England and Wales for those who are familiar with the curriculum. And the reason we chose that demographic is because from literature, from academic literature, we know that kids within that age range start to have a maximum appreciation for climate issues and sustainability and the world around them. So they're not just living in the nursery school anymore. They're like, you know, they're, they're starting to see things going on in the world. And they're also completely unrestrained by examinations and the school curriculum. So they're not in high school yet. They're not studying towards their GCSEs and things like that. And on top of that, which is kind of more like an anecdotal thing, they tend to have a great imagination and engagement with new concepts that we kind of give them and, and uh, introduce to them. So they really run with things. So this class at White on the Hill were super keen to get involved. And we went along and, and showed them some of our own cool new solar tech, um, which is, you know, involves like flexible solar panels that can charge their phone. And my goodness, if you've ever seen a kid see their phone being charged by a solar panel, <laughs> they, find it, they find it remarkably amazing. Um, you know, they all want one after the session and they, they go home and say, oh, you know, mum and dad, I can I can do this without any plug and all that kind of stuff. Um, and when we actually got them to do the measuring, they, they loved it. There was, you know, some kids were really, really caught up in how cool it was that they could see how much energy they could get from the sun and they could feel the power of the wind. And they started to appreciate these things a bit differently. And, you know, very quickly, we managed to get a small grant to scale this up a bit. So we, me and Beth sort of toured the country in a sort of one week period where we went around some schools from Scotland to the northwest of England, back to Cambridgeshire and down to Somerset to get schools, to, to specifically interact with schools that were, we thought would need or could use the engagement. So we particularly target schools that are, have a low participation in higher education. So 
there's this data source called the UK Polar Four, which maps the participation of children in either college or university. And we specifically try and target schools within regions that are on the lower end of that scale, because these tend to be the regions where opportunities are, are few and far between, or, or at least um, reduced. And we think by reaching out particularly to these regions, we can hopefully make as big a difference as possible to the kids and teach them some, some new skills and get them in, interested in science. So we, we had great success with that tour. And the nice thing was obviously that being, being from Scotland, I know that there's no sun. <laughs> and, but there is a lot of wind. But there is lots of wind. <laughs> yeah. And actually, if you go now, like in my lifetime, the amount of wind turbines that have sprung up on hills around Glasgow and, and up north and even out to sea now is, is amazing. So like the schools in the north, they tend to get really good results with the wind measurements. And then the schools in the south, Cambridgeshire, we know is um, very good for solar. You can see solar panel farms when you pass on the train. And then Somerset, obviously, famously quite sunny. So the kids are starting to see that even in this small country, geographically, we have a huge variation in our energy resources. And it's really important to choose wisely what we build, because if we go and build millions of solar panels in Scotland, we're not, we're not going <laughs> to sustain ourselves. Um, and, you know, vice versa in England. So that, that was how this all began with a simple, a simple idea, the impact meeting and, you know, this encouragement to run with it. And then two fairly, fairly keen people <laughs> with myself and Beth. And as soon as we sort of saw how, how much the, the kids and the teachers were engaging, we knew that we needed to, to sort of grow this. So over the last few years, we've just been applying for various small pots of funding to scale up the project. And we've, we've worked closely with the University of Cambridge Primary School. Um, so there's a teacher there called Lucy Bullen-Smith, who was actually the STEM leader of the school. And she is super passionate about sustainability and was happy for her class to be a kind of guinea pig class for some of our new resources. So with her, we started to design an actual learning module. So taking this practical science activity and building it into a learning module called the Sustain Ed learning module. And that is an eight week, eight chapter journey through energy, through how people empower, integrate in the relationship of people with energy, through to our climate and understanding how we need to protect our environment and the sort of natural world. And then going further and looking at very novel innovations and inventions and ways that people are tackling the climate crisis. So the idea is really to bring our curriculum, which is not fit for purpose at primary school age, up to date and into the modern world. And the reason I say it's not fit for purpose is because the UK government curriculum at Key Stage 2, which is sort of 7 to 11 years old, has no mention of the phrase climate change. There's no, man, there's no sort of mandate to teach about climate change at that age, which is frankly not acceptable when children see on the news every day that there's issues in the world um, that they will face in the future. And I think it's very irresponsible that they've not actually updated that yet. So by, by providing the students not only with a little bit of knowledge about that, but going further and teaching them about what people are doing to solve this crisis and what solutions are out there and what skills they can harness now that will help them 
you know, benefit in the future and help the planet in the future, we can we can really make a bigger difference. So that's really what the sustained learning module is. It's teaching next generation science to the next generation. That's our cool tagline. So recently you mentioned you received funding from EPSRC for your project. So congratulations. Uh, you also just hired your first employee. Correct? We did. Uh, so there is a clear upward trajectory for sustained. Uh, what is in store for the future? Yeah, so we're, we're very excited. We, we actually also received backing from the Royal Society of Chemistry last year. So we have EPSRC funding for some of our sort of individual projects, but the RSC were happy to fund basically the expansion of the charity. Um, and we've also had some backing from, from various donors. So there's people out there that want to make a difference and they know that we are doing things, that we're very active with, with individual classes, with, with growing the projects and very excited to welcome our new outreach officer to the team. And their job is basically going to be to take those learning resources that we've developed with the help of teachers at the University of Cambridge Primary School, and also with the help of um, a faculty member at the, at the Faculty of Education here in Cambridge. So they, they helped us actually put a different spin on some of our resources because another emerging sort of epidemic in our society is climate anxiety and that's something that is not really talked about in the news as much as it should be because especially amongst young people the the sort of pressure of the climate crisis is having an effect on mental health and there's a lack of really tools and procedures to deal with that yet so we were helped to focus on focus our module resources on individuals in the world who are young people who are making really big positive changes. So, so basically focusing some of our resources on role models and change makers that kids can take inspiration from and emulate and hopefully, you know, overcome the, the paralysis that, that climate anxiety, climate anxiety can give, um, which is really exciting. So now we want to just disseminate these resources on mass. Uh, our outreach officer will be in charge of building a bigger network of schools and using social media. I'm I'm only 27, but already there's there's a few aspects of social media that seem to be outrunning my <laughs> my uh, my capabilities. So we hope that they can you know get a handle on all the new um, sort of platforms to spread information to teachers and students that you know there's these cool new ways of tackling sustainability issues and and uh, please get involved. Very exciting. So maybe one last question for you. What is uh, in store for you personally? Where do you see yourself in five years? So right now I'm kind of on the border of working fully in engagement and working fully in research. So I still, I'm still active working with uh, solar photovoltaics and novel energy materials. And that's something I love and I've, I've struggled to, <laughs> to sort of move away from because I know that it, it can make a difference. But I also see the kind of direct impact that having... Uh, that making these educational resources is having on people. Not only in the UK, I'm starting to get involved in international outreach as well. So I'm, I'm working in a collaboration with um, outreach officers at a STEM centre in Bahir Dar in Ethiopia. And they're doing amazing work, not only teaching students in their own STEM centre, they're, they're sort of running mobile labs and going to community schools in regions that don't have any electricity or any running water and stuff like that. And they can, they're, they're bringing practical science to classes that have never seen practical science. And they're trying to, you know, give these students opportunities that they, didn't, that they don't have basically. 
So I, I'm really interested in how our resources that we've developed for the UK can be edited and can help students that have, you know, even more difficult situations like that. Um, so yeah, that's a world that I'm just starting to, to, to sort of enter and I, and I, you know, I'm really interested in going a bit further. Wonderful. So we wish you all the best for your future endeavors. Thank you very much for being our guest here today. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. So thank you today to our guest, Stuart McPherson, and to our producer, Chris, for this episode. The news today was brought to you by Simone. If you want to learn more about what's been discussed in this episode or want to join us or study with us at the Cavendish, go to cavendish.cam.ac.uk forward slash podcast. If you want to know more about SustainEd, visit their website at sustaineducation.org. Thank you for listening in to People Doing Physics. If you like the podcast, please subscribe or leave us a review. We'd love to put your questions to our team of physicists. So send us your most pressing ones on Twitter using the hashtag hashtag people doing physics. You can also email us at podcast at phy.cam.ac.uk. We'll be back next month. Bye.